Good morning, ladies. It's good to uh, see all of you here once again after our little break last week. I hope you enjoyed your time together um, with families and doing things. I actually very much enjoyed last week because it gave me extra time to prepare for this morning. So um, just uh, lots of good time. I forgot to introduce myself. I'm Bev Tiefel. I've been around Habits for... I think 17 years or so, something like that. Um, it's a joy to be here. I'm married to Jerry for over 41 years. We have three daughters, um, seven grandchildren, one more on the way in March. We just found out yesterday another little girl. Right now the count's five girls, two boys, so we're a little girl heavy. And I also have a son who's... Um, currently back home with us, graduated from college, but back home, which leads me to just tell you a little bit in preparation for this morning. I was working Monday, and um, that evening he told his dad, he goes, I don't know about mom. She was just talking to herself all morning. <laughs> so, and so then he's coaching me, and he goes, Mom, you're talking in a monotone. And I said, well, I'm not really, and he goes, so I'm hoping I don't talk in a monotone this morning. So, and then like, last night, he's like, Mom, you got to put passion into what you're saying. Now, if you know my son. See, Laura's giggling. She knows my son. You have to put passion into your words. So then he proceeds to show me a YouTube video of Aragon, Lord of the Rings, before they go into battle, and they're his impassioned speech. And so then he says, you've got to be like that. And I said, yes, but they're going into battle. You know, there's a purpose to that. And he goes, Mom, you're going into battle. And I kind of went, oh, okay. So just a little chiding from a 23-year-old son here. So, but he was right. We have a battle, too. Just like they had a physical battle, we have a spiritual battle that we're going to look at and talk about. So if you would open your Bibles to Acts chapter 4, and for this first section, we're also going to flip a little bit to chapter 2, so if you can kind of keep your finger between the two, and so you can follow along as we go through these sections for lesson 5. And let's pray before we begin. Father God, I just thank you that we can be here this morning on this rainy, gray morning. Just make your presence known here. Quiet our hearts so that we can hear from you. And just thank you for your presence among us this morning. May everything we do and say glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we had the little break, but let's think about last time we were together. We ended with the section in chapter 4 where Peter and John were praising God after being released from the council. They had rejoined their friends and their fellow believers, and they prayed. And we look in, in chapter 4, verse 31, we see the result. It says, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. 
So this leads us to the beginning of today's passage and verses 32 through 37 of chapter 4, which is actually a summary description of the community of believers in Jerusalem at this time. So comparing that with Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, we see that chapter 2 is also considered a summary passage describing the believers in this new church. So let's look at the characteristics of the believers in Jerusalem at this time. Chapter 4, verse 32 says, The full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Or it could read, all who believed were of one heart and one soul. They were unified. They had unity with one another. Not just because they decided to organize a new group, but they were endowed with a God-given unity through the Holy Spirit. In chapter 2, we see how they spent their time together. It said they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, learning more about what Jesus had taught. Fellowship, breaking bread, which meant probably sharing meals as well as remembering the Lord's Supper, and prayers. This interaction was a result and a cause for the unity among the believers. It also fulfilled prophecy as stated in Ezekiel 11:19, which says, and I will re- I excuse me, and I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. This group exhibited radical behavior that was expressed, as stated in in chapter 4, verse 33. Great grace was upon them all. Or it could be said, God's remarkable loving kindness and favor and goodwill. Or as in chapter 2, 47, it said they had favor with the people. They were different and attractive to those who were seeking salvation. Remember in chapter 4, verse 21, the Sanhedrin council let Peter and John go without punishment because the people were praising God for the healing of the lame man. The apostles and the believers had favor with the people. The apostles exhibited boldness and testified with great power because of the filling of the Holy Spirit. It also says they multiplied. In chapter 2, verse 47, it says, And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. In the beginning of chapter 4, verse 4, it says that many believed, and the number came to about 5,000. Their message was attractive because it was true, loving, and grace-filled. Warren Wiersbe, in his book, Be Dynamic, says of this behavior that in the early church, Each member sought to be an effective witness for Jesus Christ, no matter where he happened to be. He goes on to say, to apply it to us today. He says, today, evangelism is not the work of the chosen few, but should be the daily delight and ministry of the whole congregation. Because of this unity and evidence of love shown to one another, In verse 34, we read, there was not a needy person among them. They practiced generosity. Let's think a minute about 
um, who among the believers might have had need. What about the apostles themselves? As they had followed Jesus for three years, left their livelihoods, left families, did not support themselves with jobs. As we, we recall, Peter, James, John, and Andrew had been fishermen in Galilee. And Matthew was a tax collector. I don't think he could go back to his job now. So they might have had financial need as they were staying in Jerusalem rather than going home. And there might have been others who, by receiving salvation by faith in Jesus, might have lost their jobs. So we look at um, verses 245 and chapter 4, 34 and 35, and they state essentially the same thing. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. There actually was an Old Testament pattern for this that was given to the Israelites when they were to enter the Promised Land, and it's recorded in Deuteronomy 15, verses 4 through 11. It says, But there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. If among you one of your brothers should become poor, in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake." So what was practiced here in this new church in Jerusalem was outright displays of generosity and love, love for one another. This was not only giving from income, but sacrificing assets in order to meet the needs of the Christian brothers whenever need arose. This was a selfless, sacrificial, and voluntary act to serve the needs of the body of believers as each had the ability to give. Radical behavior that demonstrated to all those around that this indeed was the work of God, a result of following and having faith in Jesus and being filled with the Holy Spirit. And so now we meet the man called Barnabas, son of encouragement. Isn't that a great descriptive positive phrase don't you like to know people like that who are encouraging, who always see the glass half full, not half empty? Don't you like to be around them? And you know, we're going to read more about Barnabas in later chapters in Acts, and we'll see what an important role he played in being a witness and spreading the gospel to the end of the earth. But here in Acts 4, we see his generosity. Barnabas is noted as a Levite, which is the tribe that assisted the priests in the temple. It also says he's not from Jerusalem, but he's from Cyprus. So he was probably a Hellenist Jew, which means he was a Greek-speaking Jew. And we're going to talk a little bit more about Hellenist Jews in a minute. But Barnabas was part of this newly formed group of believers, and he saw needs. So it said Barnabas owned a field, and he sold it 
and he brought the money to the apostles so that it could be used for whoever was in need. It was more important to Barnabas to meet needs than for him to own a field. People were more important than possessions. And as this event was written into this narrative by Luke, it's evident that the generosity of Barnabas became widely known among the believers. Which leads us to this next section of scripture that we're going to ponder in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. As we recall in, in verse 34, it says, As many were owners of lands or houses sold them. It does not say that all were selling all their possessions, because in chapter 2 we read they were still meeting in homes, so selling possessions was a voluntary effort, not a prescriptive one. It was a matter of the heart for these believers to give up land or houses. However, any good idea can become distorted if the correct thought, prayer, and guidance of the Holy Spirit's not applied. So now enter the picture of Ananias and Sapphira. This is sort of an eye-opening account. When you first read it, you go, hmm, why did this happen? What's really going on here? Seems pretty drastic to me. Actions by God. And I think we go from unity, love, and generosity to this. So let's look carefully at this passage and see what's really happening. Interestingly, the name Ananias means God is gracious. And the name Sapphira means beautiful. But let's see if they really did live up to their names' meanings. So follow along as I read these first 11 verses. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to him, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. So it says they sold a piece of property, which was voluntary. They did not have to sell it. And even if they did sell it, they could have said, well, we sold this land, and out of the proceeds, we're going to give X number of dollars to the church. 
rather than implying that they were give, giving the entire amount of the proceeds, as is stated in verse 1, that they had kept back some of the proceeds for themselves. They wanted the credit and the prestige for sacrificial generosity without the inconvenience of it. So Peter asks, why did you contrive this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. So let's think about all the sins that are here. They're multiple. Lying, obviously, that's the first one, lying. He, they did lie to men about the amount because they perceived that this was the total. But more importantly, they lied to God to think that God would find this acceptable. Ananias was not honest with himself about why he had contrived such a deed. And that's exactly what this is, contrived. Or the word that came to my mind was schemed. I actually looked up synonyms of the word contrived, and it means false, unnatural, artificial, forced, fixed. It was not a natural outflowing of a regenerated heart. And he was certainly not honest with God about why he would develop such a plan. This gift or sacrifice was not offered for the right reasons. His heart motive was not to honor God, but honor himself. God does not accept sacrifices with the wrong motive. As evidenced, if you go back to the story of Cain and Abel, Abel came with a willing heart and a sacrifice that pleased God. Cain came with a sacrifice out of duty, not an obedient heart. And God rejected the sacrifice. So what else were possibly motivating factors here? Barnabas, we, as we read, was well regarded. Was there perhaps jealousy of Barnabas's reputation? Envy, wanting to be like him, well-known and well-liked. And then how about that other little insidious sin of pride that creeps in in the most subtle ways, making us use good deeds to puff ourselves up? So subtle, pride creeps into our thoughts before we even know it. Pride is the opposite of humility. It's so easy to fall prey. And it may not be about pride concerning ourselves, but it might be pride in others or in things. We have to be alert to the temptation and allure of pride. And here I said, ladies, please, I'm not just speaking to you. I'm speaking to me also. I've been pondering this for a couple months. So this is what the Lord's been giving me about this. It's just that it's so subtle that if you don't examine yourselves, you can be fall prey to this. This is a very sobering passage to study when you get beyond the initial reaction of what's there. Pride is a sin that God hates. As he says in Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. At this stage in the early church, this was no small event to occur, that as people were of one heart and one soul, now hypocrisy has crept in, something Jesus himself condemned in the Pharisees. 
George MacDonald, who was a Scottish minister from the 1800s, wrote, half of the misery in the world comes from trying to look instead of trying to be what one is not. That's kind of sobering, isn't it? Half of the misery in the world comes from trying to look instead of trying to be what one is not. And Wearsby says of this passage, the name that Jesus gave to this practice is hypocrisy, which simply means wearing a mask, playing the actor. Hypocrisy is deliberate deception, trying to make people think we're more spiritual than we really are. Sobering words, aren't they? But they describe Ananias and Sapphira. This was the beginning of the church, established by Jesus Christ, a new period in salvation history. And again, there's historical evidence that the Lord God is protective of any new period in the history of the Israelites and here in this period of the church. We go back to Joshua. We read the story of when the Israelites had entered the promised land and they took the city of Jericho. Before they went in, the Lord had commanded them that the city be totally destroyed and all the silver, gold, bronze, and iron vessels were to go into the treasury of the Lord as devoted things. There was nothing to be taken personally from the destruction, and he gave the warning, and he said, if you take anything out of there, you're going to make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction, and you're going to bring trouble upon it. So in Joshua 7, we read, but the people broke faith in regard to the devoted things, for the man Achan took some of the devoted things. So the Israelites went into their next battle with Ai, and they lost. They were broken, and they searched. They asked the Lord, and the Lord revealed that there was sin within the camp. Disobedience, lying, and stealing. And the Lord said, this sin must be dealt with and cleared out of the camp. So Achan was found out, and he was stoned for his sin. Sin must not be allowed to permeate God's people. God deals with sin as a warning to his people. So we have this group of believers, this new church. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. But what happened here with Ananias and Sapphira? What did Peter say to them? Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? This was a serious accusation. Rather than being led by the Holy Spirit, they had allowed the influence of Satan into their thinking. We've already seen Satan at work in trying to stop the spread of the gospel as the council commanded the apostles to no longer speak the name of Jesus. So there Satan used outward opposition. But now this is an instance of inward opposition or disruption to the body of Christ, trying to get believers to sin against God and believe lies themselves. There's a quote from Oliver Wendell Holmes, and he said, sin has many tools, but a lie is the handle which fits them all. John 8, we read, Satan is a liar and the father of lies. If he can get us to believe even one small untruth, he can snare us into believing more and more and stray from God's truth. It's serious sin that can permeate and destroy. 
falsehood ruins fellowship. So, ladies, this what seemingly small sins there might be can have serious implications. And I just think about, we're so prone to rationalize our behavior, aren't we? You might say, oh, it's just a small fit. It didn't matter. Or my, or my motive was good for doing that. It was, it was a small thing. Nobody knows that I did that. It's subtle, isn't it? But we have to ask, are we honoring God with our lips, but our hearts are far from him? Is the reputation of the Lord more important than our own? Ananias and Sapphira wanted a reputation. And commentator David Cook says, the irony is that they do make a reputation for themselves. As down through the centuries, Ananias and Sapphira have become names synonymous with hypocrisy, not generosity. So Ananias and Sapphira suffered God's personal judgment for their actions, as God has no tolerance for pride, lies, and hypocrisy. This action needed to be done to preserve the church, because in verse 11 we can read the result. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Great fear came as a response to the manifestation of God's presence. Reverent awe and healthy fear of God's displeasure and his discipline. It was a time of self-examination to rid one of all fakery and hypocrisy. Satan tried to disrupt the church, but he was no match for the Holy Spirit. So as we move on to this next section of scripture in verses 12 through 16, we also see the results that occurred with this new church. It said signs and wonders were done, which confirmed the apostles' ministry through Jesus Christ. As we remember back in John, Jesus said he did signs to confirm his identity. And now he is confirming the identity of the apostles as messengers of the good news. And Jesus had told the apostles this would happen. As he said in John 14, 12, truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. And as we look at this section, there's an interesting contrast in verses 13 and 14. That it says, there were those who were afraid to join the believers, and yet more than ever, believers were added. Men and women, here we have the first mention of women. It rather gives us maybe an indication of their hearts. Were they seeking for truth or were they just curious to see what was going on? And in the midst of physical healings, it says more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Wearsby says of all these miracles, he quotes, the greatest miracle of all is the transformation of a lost sinner into a child of God by the grace of God. That is the miracle that meets the greatest need, lasts the longest, and costs the greatest price, the blood of God's Son. The explosion of growth in the new church in spite of trials and opposition. 
So it was probably no surprise to the apostles that the Sadducees were once again enraged by the growth of the church and all that the apostles were doing. We saw previously the council had commanded Peter and John to stop teaching in the name of Jesus. However, at that point, they, you know, they never say Jesus. They just say, stop teaching in that name. As they must have understood, there's power in the name of Jesus. And they did not want to acknowledge that. So this time, as we read this section, all the apostles were taken into prison for an overnight stay. So let's look at the contrast here between the words and actions of the council and the apostles. It's interesting to read the verbs that describe the council in this section. In verse 17, it says they were filled with jealousy or envy or resentment. Verse 24 says they were greatly perplexed, wondering what would this come to? In verse 33, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Uncertainty as to what to do. And then we see they sought God. They did not seek godly counsel, but counsel from man. The council meant to enforce their power and intimidate the, the apostles to conform to their will. So as we read through this passage in verses 17 through 42, we find the apostles do not resist arrest. They go to prison. When an angel of the Lord instructed them, they obeyed. They taught in the temple. When the captain and the officers came once again to arrest them, the apostles went with them. When questioned by the high priest, they confidently answered with truth. When they were beaten, they rejoiced that they had suffered for the name of Jesus. Quite a contrast in demeanor and in the end results. This council was so content in themselves and their perceived authority that they could not see, even see God working in all of this. And there's a bit of irony that again confirms what's going on here. As you know, the Sadducees did not believe in resurrection and they didn't believe in angels either. So the fact an angel of the Lord released the apostles from prison did leave them greatly perplexed. How on earth could this have happened? And the apostles were instructed to go teach all the words of this life. They were giving eternal life while the council was speaking words of death. The council tried to stop the miracles from happening, but the miracles only multiplied, as did those who believed. This council was indeed perplexed, as we read in chapter 4, that they noted the boldness of Peter and John, that they were uneducated, common men, and yet here they are once again, in defiance of the council's command. And note the council's accusation. They said, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Didn't they remember what they had said a few months earlier? As recorded in Matthew 27, when Jesus was before Pilate, Pilate, remember, washed his hands, saying he was innocent of this man's blood. But all the Jewish people said, his blood be on us and our children. They had brought, brought Christ's blood upon themselves by their former actions, not by the teaching of Peter and John. The truth was and is, as Peter proclaimed, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. 
Rather than being the judges, the counsel now becomes the accused looking for a defense. Peter and the apostles were confident and bold in their faith in Jesus, enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit, and they were not backing down in the midst of authority of man. They did not attempt to defend themselves, but they only proclaimed Jesus. They once again confirmed that they were eyewitnesses. How could anyone refute the witness of so many agreeing to the same thing? So the council said, what to do now? So now, in the midst of these Sadducees, there's one Pharisee named Gamaliel. Gamaliel was one of the most respected Pharisaic leaders of his time. He was highly esteemed by the people, yet considered rather liberal in his applications in the law and moderate in his approach to problems. And as we'll read later in Acts, Gamaliel was actually the teacher of Saul, or as we know him, Paul. That the Sadducees would heed the words of a Pharisee shows their esteem of the man. Gamaliel believed that God is in control of everything happening, but he also believed in free will. So in this text, he attempts to maintain order among the council and use logic rather than their emotions. In verses 38 through 39, Gamaliel cautions exercising free will in opposition to God's will. Good choice. His logic saved the apostles. However, it was a bit flawed. His not making a decision was really a decision. He did not believe the apostles. If he really wanted to know if this was a work of God, wouldn't he have investigated it further? He had perceived there, this unusual boldness among them. He had witnessed the miracles done, and yet he couldn't make up his mind about whether this was God at work. So he took the easy way out, had the apostles flogged and released. And once again, the apostles were warned, stop teaching in the name of Jesus. But the council was powerless to stop them because they were still in fear of the people. God's unstoppable gospel. These attacks and th uh, threats only made the apostles more determined to fulfill their mission, to spread the gospel to the end of the earth. Their motive was not defiance to the law and the authorities, but rather obedience to the Lord. Persecution made them trust God more and grow in their faith. And then we see the result in verse 42. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as Christ. How did they witness? It said daily. Application for us? Every Christian is a witness, either a good one or a bad one. And our witness either draws others to Christ or drives them away. We need to be prepared to give an answer for the hope within us. Are you a good witness? And now this last section of scripture in verse chapter 6 verses 1 through 7 talks to us about another attempt at slowing down the spread of the gospel. It was distraction. 
There was a complaint by the Hellenists against the Hebrews. So here's some background on this. Hellenist Jews were thought to be from outside Judea, spoke Greek as their native tongue, and thought and behaved more like the Greek culture. Hebraic Jews were native to Palestine, spoke Aramaic as their primary language, attempt, attended Hebrew-speaking synagogues, and may have known some Greek, but they were steeped in the Hebrew culture. Good things were happening in this early church. As we re read in chapter 6, verse 1, the disciples were increasing in number. However, sometimes with good things comes issues, as the case is here. With more people comes more administration to get things done properly. And at this point, we really don't know how many people were in the church. At the last mention in chapter 4, it said at least 5,000. So we don't know if the adding to that was to the, you know, so some estimate it actually could have been closer to 10,000 people. That's a huge number to administrate. The apostles were given the gift of teaching and evangelism, not necessarily the gift of distributing goods or administration. And if they had to deal with the daily distribution, they couldn't be teaching. Thus, there was distraction of the main thing. They knew they had to keep the main thing the main thing, right? So what to do? You know, Moses actually faced the same dilemma. And Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, came to him and advised him to choose others to help him so that he could tend to the overall leadership of the Israelites rather than all the administrative duties. And by choosing others to serve in the ministry, enable them to utilize their gifts of leadership and help to serve the ever-growing population of believers. You know, there are many types of ministry, all equally important. There's preaching and teaching, ministry of prayer, serving others. All are necessary and needed to build up the body of Christ. So the disciples were to select seven men from among them and note their qualifications. They were to have good reputation. They were to be of godly character and moral integrity. Someone whose character was known by all. They were to be full of the spirit and of wisdom. Having been obedient to the spirit's leading. Known to make good decisions. Consistent with God's will. Shown to be a leader. And it says this decision pleased the whole gathering. So there was confirmation that this was a good step forward in the church. And then if we look at the men who were chosen, note they all had Greek names. So it very well may be that they were all Hellenistic Jews. And even one of them, Nicholas, was called a proselyte, which means he was a Gentile, converted to a Jew, and now a disciple of Christ. So what an example of what Paul talked about in Romans, about how there is no Jew, no Greek, no difference in the kingdom of God. So these men were anointed for the work in the church so they could serve while the apostles continued in prayers and ministry of the word. And this has now become a model for the church as the word used to describe this, this position has been translated deacons. Deacons are to serve the body and to take care of physical and financial needs. 
And in verse 7, we see the result of this aversion to distraction. It says, the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. The explosive growth of the church due to dedicated, self-sacrificing followers who relied upon the Holy Spirit and the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's do a quick review. We've covered a lot of material. We saw the unity and grace exhibited in the early church. We saw disobedience and wrong attitudes that could have led to inner opposition to the gospel, except God used punishment as a warning to the believers. We saw direct opposition from the ruling council. But I want to go back a minute to Acts 2, 46 through 47. And it reads this way from the NIV. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And it's just, I love when God intervenes into our lives to give us points, and that happened last week. As I was preparing this, I pulled out my devotional for the day, and it happened to be one written by Scotty Smith, and this verse was the basis of his devotional. And it made me think more and more about these verses and the joy seen in these early believers. And here's a portion of what Scotty wrote for the devotional that day. He said, We've become so good at talking and defending the gospel, but we don't really seem to be enjoying it right now. Have we become grace legalists, self-righteous about the gospel? How could that be? And then he ends in prayer. He says, I'm sorry, restore to us the joy of your salvation, Jesus. Bring us back to the childlike wonder of our early days of knowing you. May your welcoming heart once again be extended to stranger and friend alike. Oh, to enjoy the favor of those around us simply because you are so clearly in our midst. I say I direct this as much to me as it is to you. Do you still enjoy the fervor? I'm sorry, do we still have the fervor and joy of our salvation? that we want everyone to know Jesus. This description of the early church is to still be true today of love, generosity, unity, and multiplication. Are we doing our part to make it so? Are our hearts in right relationship with Jesus? And so may we continue the mission of Jesus Christ to take the gospel to the end of the earth and to witness explosive growth. Let's pray. Father, I just rejoice in these words that you've given us, the joy of our salvation. I just pray that we all examine our hearts to make sure we have the right motives and that we only bring honor to you. Thank you for this time that we've had this morning, and I pray for the discussion groups, that there'll be um, sweet sharing among each other. Just thank you for this day and um, all that you've done for us. 
In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You are dismissed.